Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Unto Caesar podcast, uh, the companion podcast to the record Unto Caesar that was released by me, Jared Vanatta, under the name Taipan. Uh, this is our first real episode. Uh, we're going to be going over the song GPO. Uh, I'll start with reading the lyrics for the song and then the historical background, and then we'll talk a little bit more freely about some of the ideas that are presented there. GPO. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among gray 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite meaningless words or have lingered a while and said polite meaningless words and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where Motley is worn, all changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part, our part, to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child. When sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild, what is it but nightfall? No, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse, McDonough and McBride, and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn or changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. It was by William Butler Yeats. It was written September 25th, 1916, though I believe he didn't actually publish it until 1920. And actually, on the lyric page for this song, I decided to include the entire poem, even the parts that I didn't use in the song. Um, that was a conscious choice, uh, just because I feel like this is such a moving piece. Um, and I actually had never read this poem prior to this year, so it really had a profound effect on me. And I felt like uh, if anybody was to seek out any of the poems that I put in this work, it should be that one, and I wanted it to be available to them immediately. Okay, let's dive into the history. Ireland has been ruled by England in some form or fashion since the 11th century. The history, the story, the passion of Ireland is long. It runs deep and it is a complicated story filled with violence, a belief in self-determination, and is inseparable from the history of the United Kingdom. Ireland has tried many times throughout its history to remove the yoke of British rule, but tensions came to a head in the first few decades of the 20th century around the beginning of World War I. It would be impossible to tell the story of Ireland in such short form, and in truth, I cannot alone do it justice. This instead will be a brief overview of the Easter Rising, the, the major players, the events that led up to Patrick Pierce declaring the creation of the Irish Republic in front of the General Post Office, or GPO, on that hateful day in April 1916 and the aftermath of that declaration. After years of civil lawmaking and parliamentary steps to allow Ireland the freedom of home rule, which had already been passed but was deferred by the beginning of World War I, many of the Irish political leaders felt that home rule was not enough. It 
it crippled the Irish state under its rules and regulations and placed severe restrictions on spending, organization, and actual self-governance. Even though Irish home rule had been officially passed by the British Parliament, its continual deferment and the language of the law meant that even in the best-case scenario, very little would change for the Irish people, and it certainly did not grant independence. In part, from the British perspective, there was a fear of granting the Irish too much independence because historically they had been allies of Germany and France, both of whom are nations that England had fought long wars with and had, cla- and had clashing geopolitical aims, especially in the context of, of World War I. The Irish Republican Brotherhood, or IRB, and other revolutionary organizations are at the core of the Easter Rising and the modern fight for Irish independence and Dublin is the focal point. Ireland is a small country, and Dublin, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century, was a relatively small city. In various ways, everyone knew everyone else, meaning you know the people that you sat down with at the end of the day, at the pub or at a restaurant or as you walk the streets. Gates indicated this in the poem with the line, quote, I have met them at close of day, end quote. However, a sense of Evolution and the dream of self-governance was an undercurrent that had existed in Irish society for centuries. The IRB was founded in Ireland and America after the famine of 1845 uh, through 1852, otherwise known as the uh, Potato Famine, in which it is estimated that over a, a million people died. Money and guns flowed from the United States from Irish nationals to Ireland for several decades after this. However, the primary aim of the IRB was not, vi- was not violent revolution. And since 1867, they instead sought to enter into politics to fight for change, and they ultimately failed. The IRB was then reconstituted in, in 1906 to 1907 with a new generation of younger Irishmen who were dedicated to the overthrow of British rule in Ireland by violent means if necessary. An Irishman named Tom Clark was one of the only older members of the IRB that was allowed to remain in the organization after it was systematically cleansed by new members to remove those who were not radical enough. Clark was central to the actions the IRB would undertake in the middle of the 1910s. Clark had been involved in a dynamiting campaign in England in the 1880s. He was arrested and after getting out of English prison, went to America and then returned back to Dublin and owned a tobaccoist shop near the post office. And it was here in September 1914 that the IRB decided that they must act while the British were distracted by World War I. England's misfortune, after all, was Ireland's opportunity. In 1915, Tom Clark helped organize a military council to figure out how best to enact a revolution. Patrick Pierce was born to an English father and an Irish mother. He went to university and qualified as a lawyer, but he was most inspired by the revitalization of the Gaelic language. He set up his own boys and girls school to further education in Gaelic for Irish children to build citizenship around language. He stood in favor of home rule in 1913, and even though he felt it was not enough, it was a start. But towards the end of 1914, he began to become more involved in the idea of an Irish revolution. He was appointed as the head of the military council of the IRB in 1915 and set a date for the rebellion, Easter 1916. The second group that was integral to the Easter Rising were the Irish Citizen Army, headed by James Connolly, who was born in Edinburgh to Irish parents and came to Ireland as a labor organizer and was involved in the 1913 lockout. 
This was a trade union lockout in Dublin and was a vivid de- demonstration of the extreme poverty of Dubliners. Labor agitation began at the same time as the founding of the Ulster Volunteers by Edward Carson. Connolly had the idea that they would protect their workers with the Irish Citizen Army and being a former British Army soldier, train the men in military tactics. It is impossible to understand the Easter Rising without first understanding the militarization of Irish society started by the Ulster Volunteer Force and the funnel of guns from from America and Germany. In the middle of the 1910s, Ireland had a standing army of about 15,000 people who were being prepared for revolution and actively being armed and funded by external entities. Even more than the military and political ideologists that pushed towards revolution, Ireland was also full of intellectual, philosophical, and religious organizations that used ideas, religious frameworks, partly due to Catholic oppression by the British, and beliefs to provide reason and galicize these Irish organizations and institutions. Finally, St. Andrew's School in Dublin, near the General Post Office leading up to the week of, of the Rising, had no students, and a sign was posted on the door stating that the school was closed for, quote, the Poets' Revolution. Poetry comes to the revolution as a vehicle to show an alternative to the British Empire through language and ideas. Key among them, that there is an ancient Ireland state, and that the Irish had been there before the British, and they would be there long after them. Most of the leaders of the Easter Rising were also poets, and while this was a revolution of force, it was also a revolution of ideas and words. The imagination of insurrection by William Irwin Thomas crystallizes this point by showing that there is a, a relationship of poetry, evolution, and the human condition, and how they are all related and intertwined. The stage was set. The Easter Rising was long planned for. And even though it was always likely to to end in failure, the ideas it spread would endure, and Pierce especially believed that the leaders of this movement would be offered up as a type of sacrifice for the continuation of the hope for a free Irish state. The Irish parliamentary members did not believe there would be a revolution, and they told the English parliament as much. In fact, they warned parliament against moving against the standing militias, because then there would be a clear reason for violent revolt. The Irish Revolutionary members sought to recruit Irishmen from German POW camps at the outset of World War I and asked for guns and soldiers to add force to the revolution. However, the guns being shipped from Germany were caught and the ship scuttled before it could be reclaimed by the British authorities and its organizer was locked in the Tower of London. The revolutionaries decided to go ahead with the plan anyway. Some of the volunteers of the militia were recruited by Ireland Irish parliamentarians to fight in France, which further split the force of the militia. However, all remaining members were asked to launch the revolt in Dublin on Easter Sunday, and following the taking of Dublin, the rest of the country would rise. Due to confusion within the ranks of the rebels, there were missives sent and published in the Irish newspapers to delay the maneuvers, and rather than everyone mobilizing simultaneously on Easter Sunday in Dublin or not, they began instead on Easter Monday with fewer than 1,000 men. After noon on Easter Monday, the revolutionaries marched on the general post office and subdued the five British soldiers who were stationed there. Pierce then stood on the steps of the GPO and declared the birth of the Irish Republic. But the citizens of Dublin were not stirred to revolution. The rebels then moved to barricade the entry points to Dublin and began to take small governmental buildings and avoiding Dublin Castle, instead took several facilities with no real strategic value. 
there was little to no resistance from the British armed forces because they believed there would be no revolution, and many of the soldiers stationed in Ireland were enjoying their Easter weekend away from Dublin and blessing their luck that they were not on the front line in France. The revolutionaries took Stephen's Green in the center of Dublin, which was a large park, and dug a trench there, but due to the number of tall buildings surrounding the park were forced to retreat to the Royal College of Surgeons, where they stayed for the rest of the week. Once British armed forces arrived, they immediately began pacifying Dublin, and due to poorly designed offenses, they entered with little to no opposition. By Monday evening, most rebel strongholds had been retaken. On Tuesday morning, martial law was declared in the midst of severe looting throughout the city. There are stories of children breaking into sweet shops and taking candy they had never and likely would never be able to afford, and other stories of men banding together to haul a grand piano down the main thoroughfare. By Wednesday, April 26, 1916, the British began to shell Dublin from the sea and leveled rebel strongholds throughout the city. On Friday the 28th, Pierce and the other rebels began to surrender in order to avoid enormous loss of life and sue for peace and eventually agreed to unconditional surrender. Smaller uprisings across Ireland held out for a few more days after the initial surrender in Dublin, but were eventually suppressed. From its outset, the leaders of the Easter Rising understood that barring total victory, there was only one thing waiting for them if they were captured, which was death. Militarily, the Easter Rising was a failure, but politically it was a huge success. Britain won the battle, but lost the war of public opinion by their brutality against the leaders of the rebellion, who were condemned to death by charge of treason against the ruling government which was further exacerbated by acting in the midst of World War I. The martyrdom of the rebel leaders gave the Irish people a reason to stand firm against the oppression of British rule, while the Irish monarchist party, Sinn Féin, had nothing to do with arising itself. After the treatment of the rebels and the roundup of innocent civilians by British authorities, they were pushed to fight for a free Irish state. Eventually, as we now know, Ireland was partitioned north and south where Southern Ireland is independent of the United Kingdom and is a direct descendant of the ideas propagated by the rebel leaders of the Easter Rising and all those who came before. The Irish War of Independence took place in the 1920s and was galvanized by the people who organized, fought, and ultimately died for the idea of a free Ireland, a debate and fight which continues to this day. William Butler Yeats wrote the poem Easter 1916 eight months after the Easter Rising had concluded. Though it was not published until 1920, he knew the men that organized a rising, and he watched them all summarily executed for treason. We never get a real sense of Yeats' true feeling for a rising itself, but his sense of grief is tangible in every line, and that is what drew me into this poem and this moment in history, the human cost. So that concludes the written section for GPO. Um, just a few more things to add. Uh... For people that really have an interest in this topic, uh, there's a podcast that came out earlier this year. Um, the name of the podcast is Arrest is History. They did a whole series of episodes on the Easter Rising, and that was actually the first time that I had learned anything about this, um, but they interviewed a man named Paul Rouse, who is a professor at the University of Dublin, and he's way more qualified to speak on this topic than, than I ever uh, would be, but it's well worth to listen and there are further citations to be found in the book itself um if we want to talk briefly about the song i i wanted to keep it 
as simple as possible to accentuate the words of the poem. And I really tried to keep that melancholy feel throughout. It's a fairly simple song. There's not a lot of tracks. Um, and really the focus is uh, Easter 1916. And we're going to come back to Ireland later on with Cromwell. But something to pay attention to here is, you know, what, what these men did and why they did it and why they felt the need to do it when there was no other option. And I think when we do get to Cromwell, that provides an excellent example um, as to the type of generational trauma and oppression that can exist across time and space for people. That it it becomes so uh, ingrained in their cultural milieu that they they can't separate themselves from it and this was something that i think anybody paying attention always knew was going to happen it was just a matter of when and it 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 had tried to happen many many times before this and even the easter rising itself was not successful it wasn't successful until the 20s and it it's largely still not successful because ireland isn't a a unified island um and so I think for these men, uh, they would not consider a revolution successful until the entirety of Ireland is unified and independent. Um, I would like to close with the reading of the proclamation that Patrick Pierce read on the steps of the post office. The provisional government of the Irish Republic to the people of Ireland, Irishmen and Irish women. In the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. Having organized and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary organization, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and through her open military organization, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army, having patiently perfected her discipline, Having resolutely waited for the right moment to reveal itself, she now seizes that moment and supported by her her exiled children in America and by gallant allies in Europe, but relying in the first on her own strength, she strikes in full confidence of victory. We declare the right of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland and to the unfettered control of Irish destinies to be sovereign and indefeasible. The long usurpation of that right by a foreign people and government has not extinguished the right, nor can it ever be extinguished except by the destruction of the Irish people. In every generation, the Irish people have asserted their right to national freedom and sovereignty. Six times during the past 300 years, they have asserted it in arms. Standing on that fundamental right, and again asserting it in arms in the face of the world, we hereby proclaim the Irish Republic as a sovereign, independent state, and we pledge our lives and the lives of our comrades in arms to the cause of its freedom and of its welfare and of its exaltation among the nations. The Irish Republic is entitled to and hereby claims the allegiance of every Irishman and Irish woman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens and declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts cherishing all the children of the nation equally and oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by 
by an alien government which have divided a minority from the majority in the past. Until our arms have brought the opportune moment for the establishment of a permanent national government, representative of the whole people of Ireland, and elected by the suffrages of all her men and women, the provisional government, hereby constituted, will administer the civil and military affairs of the Republic in trust for the people. We place the cause of the Irish Republic under the protection of the Most High God, whose blessing we invoke upon our arms, and we pray that no one who serves that cause will dishonor it by cowardice, inhumanity, or rapine. In this supreme hour, the Irish nation must, by its valor and discipline, and by the readiness of its children to sacrifice themselves for the common good, prove itself worthy of the august destiny to which it is called. Signed on behalf of the provisional government, Thomas J. Clark, Sean McDiarmida, P.H. Pierce, and James Connolly. Thanks. We'll see you in the next one.